0: chapter thirty six of house garden and field by l c meal this librivox recording is in the public domain the human face take a concave mirror such as is now sold as a shaving-glass and in this carefully survey your own face the concave mirror enlarges any part of the face that you wish to study closely you will see that everywhere even on the forehead and the ridge of the nose which to ordinary inspection are quite bare there are either hairs or the little pits which mark the places of old hair follicles. In most people, whether old or young, male or female, the cheeks are downy. I can often see exactly how far a man's razor reaches, for though the edge of the shaven tracks comes in a part of the face where hairs cannot be discerned by the naked eye, the downy part of the cheek reflects the light differently from the clean-shaven part. In human embryos the face is covered with plainly visible down, only the red edges of the lips being completely bare. At this time, the whole body is hairy, except the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. It would be hard to explain the distribution of strong hairs upon the human head. The bare face was probably developed by sexual selection, those suitors being preferred who showed it most plainly, and this explanation may apply to all the other details. The recesses beneath and behind the jaw would naturally retain the hair longer, as other recesses on the body do. Perhaps the eyebrows and mustache are derived from the bunches of tactile hairs so often found in other animals above the eyes and the mouth. It might have been expected that the scalp, being prominent and exposed, would have become bare very early, but it has turned out otherwise, perhaps because the women did not like a bald crown. Three points distinctive of the human face are the prominent nose, the prominent chin, and the hanging lobe of the ear hardly any ape or quadruped possesses one of them i can only recollect three monkeys which have prominent noses i do not think that we can give any physiological reason why man should have a prominent nose certainly it does not indicate unusually keen scent nor is the olfactory surface either so large or so sensitive as in many animals which have the nose blended with the upper jaw to form a snout the siamang gibbon is the only ape which has even the rudiment of a chin the hanging lobe of the ear is totally deficient in all animals except man and the gorilla, and in the gorilla it is very slightly developed. Examine next the eye and its appendages. At the inner angle next to the nose is a red, wart-like fold, which exactly agrees in position with the third eyelid of many lower animals, nearly all quadrupeds, birds, higher reptiles. When fully developed, it can be drawn across the eyeball and employed to cleanse it from dust. Animals which possess a third eyelid wink with it, and not with the upper eyelid as we do. One proof that the eye wart of man is really a vestige of the third eyelid has been furnished by careful dissection. Every functional third eyelid is supported by thin cartilage, which forms the bulk of its substance. Now Giacomini has proved that in man, and more frequently in Negroes than in Europeans, this cartilage is often retained he found it to be present in twelve out of sixteen Negroes whom he examined. On the edge of the lower eyelid, not far from the inner angle of the eye, there can be seen a small but distinct prominence. Just above it, on the corresponding part of the upper eyelid, is another prominence of the same size. Your concave mirror will show you that each prominence is perforated by a small hole. The holes are the openings of canals, which soon unite, and open into a larger duct this passes straight downwards and discharges into the lower part of the nose a watery secretion discharged from the tear gland is employed to moisten the eyeball and eyelids and wash away dust the secretion after bathing the parts escapes through the ducts just described leaving behind the dust which accumulates in the neighbourhood of the eye ward this insensible flow of water escapes into the nose but when irritation of the eye or strong emotion causes profuse secretion the eye overflows and we shed tears sit so as to face a strong light turn either the upper or lower eyelid outwards and examine its inner surface you will be able to see through a thin transparent membrane the meibomian glands it is rather easier to see them in the eye of a second person the glands look like white beaded strings and run at right angles to the edges of the eyelid there are about thirty on each upper eyelid and rather fewer on the lower one each gland opens separately on the free edge of the eyelid, and the openings may be made out with the help of the concave mirror. The glands are filled with an oily secretion, and it is supposed that they hinder adhesion of the lids, such as might be caused by hardened mucus. Is it possible that the oily secretion checks the overflow of the watery fluid which bathes the eyeball? The face is a chief organ of expression and we glance first at the face of a companion when we want to know the state of his mind. Even a dog will look into his master's face, as if to read there the indications of satisfaction or displeasure, though our voice and gestures tell a dog infinitely more than the mere expression of our features can do. The signs of emotion are extremely varied and shade into one another so that a scientific classification is hardly possible. Strong feeling may show itself quite unmistakably, and yet in a purposeless way the physical manifestation having no power to alter the circumstances which excited the feeling. Thus we blush with shame, turn livid or green with fear, tremble with rage, catch our breath and become speechless with excitement. None of these involuntary bodily symptoms are serviceable to us, and they may be highly inconvenient. They are apparently due to mental disturbance acting through the nervous mechanism upon various sets of organs, and primarily the organs of circulation and respiration. There is a second, ill-defined group of expressions and gestures which may be called incipient acts. Perhaps they were once purposeful and useful, but now they have become habitual or even instinctive. The wild man, like animals of other kinds, probably crouched to avoid danger or to show submission, drew back his lips and exposed his teeth when preparing to fight, opened his mouth wide and shouted when suddenly startled. In civilized society, the emergencies of life are less imperious, and we can better control our feelings. Nevertheless, we shrug our shoulders, that is, we begin to crouch, when in real or feigned terror, sneer by raising the upper lip a little, and open our mouths when surprised. Our savage progenitors were probably used to accompany any sudden fit of determination with muscular effort of some kind, clenching the fist, setting the foot firmly on the ground, or fixing the eye on a near object, and bringing down the eyebrows to exclude superfluous light. Even now, when we are displeased or intent upon some purpose, we sometimes clench our fists or stamp, but it generally relieves our feelings sufficiently to frown. The habit of scrutinizing one another's faces soon gives a meaning even to these vestiges of acts and intentions. The incipient acts shade into a third class, which we may call symbolic or conventional expressions, nodding or shaking the head, and most of the gestures executed by the arms and hands are of this sort. They may become habitual, and even unconscious, but they are most practiced by those nations or individuals who habitually endeavor to express their feelings strongly, and thereby to influence their fellow men. Smiling is a mode of expression whose origin is particularly hard to trace, but its significance has come to be entirely conventional. End of chapter 36